I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you wanna listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, Follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there and enjoy the new episodes of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's executive is an advocate for the songwriting community, pushing to evolve how the songwriting profession can survive in a DSP ecosystem in the year 2020. The songwriter relationship with streaming services has traditionally been adversarial, but this guest's team has actively and aggressively rolled out unique opportunities to revere songwriters and artists without patronizing the plight of the modern writer. We are lucky to have our friend visit us from across the pond, the global director of music publishing from that small company called Apple and the executive is Elena Siegel. It's Elena Siegel. It's Elena Siegel. Elena Siegel. <laughs> we'll do that again. And the executive <laughs> is Elena Siegel. So it is Elena. It is Elena. Yes. And it is Siegel. It is Siegel. Yes. Um, how is it that? Um, how often do people actually pronounce it correctly? And does it depend if they're if they're from the UK or if they're from the it, United States? It does depend, but it's probably five percent correct. Five percent? <laughs> I would guess, yes. So then who who are your parents? Who are the people who named you? <laughs> um my parents have absolutely nothing to do with the music industry. Um Where are they from? They were both born in London. Uh-huh. Um very standard London, North London. North London Jewish upbringing, I would say, um, both of them. And um, I was named after an Italian family friend. So it's really Elena. Oh, um, okay. And uh, <laughs> I don't have a middle name because both my parents hated their middle names. So it's Really? Elena Siegel. What yes. was their middle names? Do you know? I, Do you my remember? father's middle name is David and my mother's middle name is Patricia. And, and they, they just, didn't, they they just, just didn't like, like it? Them. Yeah. Okay. Did you ever play music? Oh, yes. I, I've played music since I was four. What did you play? Uh, cello, piano, and saxophone. Cello you, first. 
Do you still play? Not as often as I would like. Piano and saxophone more than cello. My cello is getting a bit dusty in London. So how does somebody from North London who plays... Well, my parents are from North London. I grew up in Southwest London. But, um, okay, yeah. from Southwest London. Yeah. How does someone get involved in, you know, um, I guess the music industry? I mean, were you, you were doing music when you were younger, so did you want to be a performer? performer? I think I decided very early on that I was not cut out to be a performer. And How did you know that? Because my cousin uh, is a professional cellist. <laughs> and I started learning because of him and sort of despite him as well. Um, what does that mean? It means my parents didn't want me to learn the cello because he was sort of very gifted. Uh-huh. And uh, they were worried that if I wasn't as good, I'd be upset. So they wanted me to learn something else. But then my aunt, his mother, had um, started learning the cello at the same time as him so that she could help him. And she decided to become a cello teacher. And when my parents were out one day when I was four, my aunt showed up with a cello, with a little mini cello, and started teaching me. And when my parents got home, I apparently said, oh, I'm learning the cello. And then they didn't want to take it away from me because I'd be upset. So... I sort of started learning the cello by accident because of my cousin, but despite the fact my parents didn't actually want me to play the cello. So did you, how far did your music education take you before you realized that you were done being Uh, a performer? Well, in, in the UK, we have grades of instruments, grade one through eight. And I did grades one through six piano and grades one through eight. Wow cello and saxophone I started later when I was about 16 and I saxophone was what I was most sort of passionate about and tenor sax and jazz everything jazz classical everything Um, I feel like saxophone in particular has um you know we were talking about gender in the music industry and cello seems to be pretty equal. It seems like a lot of, at least in my music schools, I remember a lot of women playing cello um, and piano, but I don't remember a lot of women playing saxophone. What was it that inspired you to play saxophone? I just always, always just loved the sound of it. And I think, because I played tenor sax, which obviously is similar registered to cello, I think I loved the saxophone and I gravitated immediately towards the tenor. And then I think for a long time I was told I couldn't play it. Um, because Why? Well, because I went to a school that was quite sort of focused on music and uh, like Holst had been the director of music many moons earlier and it was all very serious. And um, they wanted me to focus on the cello. And so they wouldn't let me pay, play the saxophone. And then I got braces and then you can't play the saxophone because <laughs> you'd completely cut up your mouth. <laughs> Um, and so it was one I, once I got my braces off that, and I was going through a sort of slightly rebellious phase. I was like, I am going to play the saxophone. This is happening. Uh, and I just picked it up and, and I did sort of grade six almost immediately. And then, and then did, uh, seven and eight very quickly. I feel like if you play piano, there's a reason why most people start with piano. Obviously it sounds like you started with cello, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's easy to see the, Western music, when you look at a piano and you see how notes relate to each other in literal distance from each other. Yep. Um, for you to 
play such different instruments. It's not unusual for a cello player to play bass or for a piano player to play maybe some guitar or something like that, but it's really unusual for someone to pick up saxophone and whatnot. But clearly you were proficient at all three. I still don't understand why you didn't pursue being a performer. Um, Because I saw what my cousin was going through and I saw how hard it is and how much you have to do to still potentially get nowhere. Sure. Um, and I couldn't quite live with the frustration. I just knew I couldn't live with the frustration of that. Um, and I will, I, not to interrupt, sorry, but I, I was going to say a lot of singers are raised to be performers. You know, if you sing well, then we're going to put you on stage to be a performer versus understanding that there's composition and you could be a songwriter. You know, a lot of people who listen to this are people who were either formerly or currently performers, but are primarily interested in being a songwriter. I think there's something about being proficient at an instrument doesn't mean that you have to do that instrument to still be in music. Did you ever do composing? Did you ever do any version of songwriting? Uh, Well, I, I seem to remember writing two songs well, but only the music. I basically took poems and set them to music um, when I was about 16. Can you sing as well? Oh, I'm, no, I'm, no. I won't sing. Um, How much I, do we I have to pay you to sing no, on this podcast? There is no money. There is okay. no money that okay. will pay me to sing. Yeah. I, I, I sing like a choir girl because I've only ever sung in choirs and I hate it. I hate it. Do you sing in the car, singing yeah. like to Taylor Swift, but in a Not choir to Taylor voice? Swift, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you listen to? Oh, you have, have access to all the music in the world, <laughs> quite literally. So what do you listen to? Um, I have I have very eclectic taste in music. Really everything from classical to jazz to um, Bastille to um, Celeste right now in the UK. Love Billie Eilish's album. Absolutely loved it. Um, I think Phineas is just one of the most talented humans on the planet. Um, love, I, I mean... There is so much I can't. You put me on the spot, and then I can't. Being a being a fan of music, but having the ability to play it, do you enjoy listening to music, um, or do you find it? Do you find yourself critiquing music? Do you listen as a critic or as a fan? I think both. Um, I think I grew up because of the school I went to. I think I grew up listening to music in a very critical way to start with. But I think the way I've listened to music has actually really changed in the last year and a half. Um, mm-hmm. I I think since being in the, the role that I'm now in, uh, I've always thought there were two kinds of people. There are people who hear the music first and there are people who hear the lyrics first. And I used to always, always hear the music first. And now I think I'm much more balanced and I pay attention to lyrics much more than I used to. Um and I notice the structure of songs much more than I used to. So I think I probably started out at school very critical because I, that's the way I was sort of taught. And then I went through a sort of pure fan phase. And now I'm very much still a fan. Um, but I just notice different parts of the song more and the construct of the song more. What brings you to the dark side of the music business what what dark got side? you no <laughs> what got you from being a performer to being on the you know like the 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 impression of people who work on the music industry side of things are people who the the stereotype is that they don't know anything about music 
and that they come at it strictly from a business thing. So I'm glad that we're breaking down that stereotype to begin with. So and the, some, and the part I didn't mention before is that I wanted, when I was 16, I wanted to be a sound engineer. That was what I wanted to do. That was, and I did work experience in air studios in London. Um, and that was producing, mixing, engineering. Well, I don't think I knew the difference at the time. I think engineering was what I sort of thought I wanted to do at the time. Um, I wanted to be behind. When you were 16? Yeah. Who's introducing you to this stuff? Because your parents. Well, are are proud of you for doing cello, for playing cello. You know, what what makes you say I'm going to be an engineer? Well, I, I started to get a sort of slight inside view of the industry by complete accident through someone who my father became friends with, who sort of is indirectly responsible for where I am now. <laughs> Who Who's that? Um, Chris Wright. And what? how is his, how, how did he see you, your talent and say, oh, you know what, you could also do all these other things. It wasn't it wasn't that he it wasn't that he proactively sort of approached me. Okay. It was just that growing up, my dad became friends with him when I was three, basically because my dad bought the house I grew up in from him. Um and they ended up becoming friends. And do you know who Chris Wright is? I don't. Who is that? Founded one of the founders of Chrysalis Records. Oh, that's the Chris. I got it. Um, okay, yeah. And so, because of him, I was just sort of getting a little bit of an inside view of the industry. And then it was because of him I got to do this work experience at Air Studios. Um, Did you work on any projects that ended up being major, major label projects? Were you able to hear your work? It was a very, very short time. And it was actually at the, the very beginning when I first got there, they, they misunderstood and thought I wanted to do work experience, sort of answering the phones and being a receptionist. Wow. Uh, so once we got past that, um, they... Was, was that you saying, that's, this, is, this isn't what I do, I'm not yeah, a... Well, it was, I seem to remember at some point someone saying something like, if you're really good, we'll let you answer the phones. And I was like, um, that's really not what I was interested in being here for. Um, and once once I sort of made that clear, then they sort of took me into the studio and sort of showed me how to sort of set up the microphones and showed me a little bit how everything worked. And they let me just sort of help with all that stuff, which was great. I mean, and I loved it. It was very brief, so I, I, there are not. I, I can't say there are any projects that uh, are out there that I worked on. So, how quickly after high school, or our version of high school? Um, you know what? What happens after that? How do you how do you start interning from sixteen years old working in studios? How do you start learning about even that's still on the creative side? Being an engineer, what what brings you on the side of? Oh, these are the people who are doing the creative stuff. I actually of all these instruments that I've played, all this engineering I've done, or or interest in these things. Now I'm going to work on behalf of the people who are creating. What what what's the, that's a big switch in a person's life. Well, and it wasn't immediate. There was a whole journey in the middle um, where I did some completely unrelated stuff. Like what? Uh, well, I. First of all, I became a lawyer, became a barrister in the UK, and was doing completely non non entertainment industry related stuff. And then, did you? Why? I mean, that's why? a that's a. 
Also, it's, it's a, a really committed choice to go be a musician your whole life and then say, you know what, I'm going to go and work, work in law and not music law. Well, I didn't Why? do that very long because I was very frustrated. But part of the reason I didn't end up pursuing the sound engineer thing, I mean, first of all, there were no female sound engineers in the UK at the time, like none. Um, and... Uh, it was very clear that if you wanted to do that, you really had to sort of leave school at 16 and go and work in the studio, kind of make the tea and work your, work your way up. And I had in my mind that I was definitely going to go to university. I think at the time there weren't really sort of sound engineering or music related um, university courses, which there are now. Um, so I was definitely going to go to university. And I... I don't really know why, but I had in my mind that I had to go to Oxford. And and then so it became a question of, well, if I want to do that, what is it that I'm going to do? And I ended up studying law really because I thought it would be interesting. It wasn't because I wanted was to it? be a lawyer. It, most of it was. What kind of law did you study? Well, you, you have to do all of it, basically, um, in at Oxford, I my favourite thing actually was sort of human rights law. Um, I mean, if I was going to do anything other than what I've ended up doing, you know, I wanted to be a sort of human rights lawyer, sort of Amal Clooney style. Um, but uh, do you think of yourself as an overachiever? No, or I think are you of myself just, as just this is me. just what you do, right? <laughs> I think of myself as someone who's just done the best I can. Do you day. feel like there's more that you could have done in your time? Or do you feel like that you're, you know, I mean, I feel like bu- there's a great quote that says, if you want something done, find a busy person to do it. You know, because busy busy people feel like, oh, they're they're not doing enough. Was yeah. that is that something that you're, were, were your parents like that? My, my mother's always been a little bit like that, I'd say. Um, yeah, my parents are very different from one another. Uh, but my mother, you know, stays very, very active and always wants to be doing a million and one things. Um, Do you have siblings? I have one sister, yes. Is is she the same way? Uh, no, we're very different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think of myself as an overachiever. I just think of myself as someone who's got up every morning and just done what needs to be done. Yeah. So after you become proficient in many instruments and go to Oxford and then get your law degree and then become a lawyer and then, um, you know, so at that point you say, you know what, I've done all this, I've done all this, I've been working in, how long were you working in law? Well, very brief because I I actually then quit the law to do something completely unrelated to either music or law. Of course. (laughs) I mean, I was going to guess that, so why not? What did you do? Um, I actually moved to L.A., uh, to become a sports agent. Oh, very cool. <laughs> what kind of uh, what kind of sports? Tennis with a it was like a, a major in tennis with a minor in basketball. Okay. <laughs> Did you work with a lot of professional athletes then? Yes, it was a very small company that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but the tennis world was a world I knew very well. Because you well. must have played tennis and were probably really good at it. <laughs> I played tennis. I was not that good at oh, it. Oh, okay. I was okay right. at it. Okay. Um, but I had sort of worked at tennis tournaments and um, in all my summers during university. At Wimbledon and, and whatnot? It didn't work at Wimbledon. Um, I worked actually, I sort of interned at some uh, tournaments over in the States. And, oh, cool. Um, and just got to know, I just got to know the industry very well and got to know a lot of the people very well. 
and uh, and really loved it. And I thought I had a Jerry Maguire moment. Mm-hmm. I was going to be the sports agent with integrity. Was there something with, I mean, that movie probably times up pretty well, you know, for you. Was was there actually, oh yeah, I can do this. And were yeah. you inspired by that movie? Totally, yes. Really? Yes. There's yep. some things with sports agencies that I feel like artists in the music artists in the music industry and tennis players are actually really similar. You know, they they um there's some competition with other people, but they all de- generally travel together and it's just one day, it's one tournament. Sometimes they win this tournament, sometimes they come back and win another one, sometimes they lose a tournament whatever it is. That's similar. Um one thing that kind of eludes songwriters but is similar is um, sponsorship and that there's outside money outside of the industry. So a tennis player can make a lot of money from Rolex and an artist can also make a lot of money from Rolex. Um, Why and how do we get into a place where songwriters can make a living outside of playing the game? Well, I think the first step is for songwriters to be more visible and and better known to start with and to have their names better known to start with. I think without that, it's very, very hard. Yeah, I mean, in this um, in this segment, what would Diz- David Israelite ask <laughs> Elena Siegel? I said it right about it. Why doesn't Apple advertise more about its better relationship with the songwriting industry? There are much, uh, a few questions from David, so I'm just warning you, this is just number okay. one. <laughs> I think because that's just not who we are. I think mm. I think it should be about the songwriters, not about us. And us shouting about it in that way makes it about us. I I agree with that on, on one hand. And the other is that you guys have, we can get into that, I've, I've done some things to really lead the way in, in a relationship with songwriters that um, can help set precedents for other companies to follow. Is that the songwriters... Is it is it our obligation to show our relationship with you guys to help set the precedent for other companies, or is it more that that's really it doesn't matter? That's just it just sort of is what it is. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, I think the precedent gets set without shouting about it mm-hmm. um, overtly. I think, um, and I think when you know, I think there are some things that we are doing that will. Um, you know, that we will be more vocal about. I think, you know, my team has existed for almost exactly 18 months now, so it still feels like quite early days. Um, And I think there's a lot coming down the line that will be be sort of more ready and more able to shout about. Sure. There was one suggestion he made that I thought was interesting. (laughs) He was talking about... He was talking about songwriter credit and, and allowing listeners to search by writer name. Um, I know that there are some things where we've created playlists and whatnot and, and ways for people to, if, if writers are proactive, they can create their own page that people can look at their own playlists and whatnot. Songwriters 
need to continue to be educated on how to do that. But, you know, I know you guys have led the way in, in some of that. But I think that's interesting, the idea of being able to search a songwriter and being able to see their discography rather than, you know. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's um, yeah, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of work that is continually going mm-hmm. on uh, to do things like that, to make things like that better. There are, there are industry-wide challenges that need addressing and it's partly songwriter education and education of managers and publishers. Um, things like, you know, the, the numerous different iterations in which a songwriter's name might appear. Um, it's a it's a very, very significant piece of work to figure out that Ed Sheeran is the same as Sheeran, Ed is the same as Edward Sheeran, is the same as Edward Christopher Sheeran, it's the same as Sheeran, comma, Ed, dot. Um, yeah. And things like that, they're sort of very technical and not very interesting and sexy seeming, but they they make things like that challenging. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Yeah. I actually have a friend who's a statistician for uh, professional athletes, and that's one of the issues is going through all the people, different companies uh, in different leagues post stats in different ways, and it's so interesting how much punctuation can make Excel sheets difficult. Um <laughs> So let's go back to you know you're you're working in uh, as an agent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in tennis and I mean that yeah. it's, it's pretty fulfilling because one of the one of the hard things with with songwriting is that it's really hard to tell um tangibly how successful a song is. Um which is also what makes it exciting. But when you watch a tennis player play there's actually money for a different a place that's delegated before the actual tournament starts. So if you're in, you know, if you're 25th and you get in the money or whatever position gets in the money, yeah. you probably know this. But you, you, we already know how much money they're going to make before the tournament even starts. Versus songwriting, where we don't have no or artists, we have no idea what they're getting yeah. paid or how they're getting paid. Um, but it seems like that would be a, a thing that would make. Working with tennis athletes is is probably exciting because you can tangibly see the success. It's exciting, and I think it's it's mentally. I think it's much easier for tennis players and songwriters. And it's I completely agree with you that there are numerous um, overlaps, uh, similarities between songwriters and tennis players. Um, but one of the biggest differences is that a tennis player wins or loses; it's very clear cut. Whereas a songwriter or an artist, there's no clear winning and losing. I mean, unless you consider one to be winning and anything lower than one to be losing, which is a depressing way to think of it. (laughs) But but, uh, I think mentally that lack of certainty has to be incredibly difficult and I don't know how you will do it. What brings you to, from tennis, I assume that then you were an astronaut or <laughs> what, 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 how yet. do you go from, yeah, not yet, not yet. we've time, let's, let's do it. Um, nobody's gone to Mars yet. You can set a bunch no, more no precedent, sense. why not? Um, how do you, how do you go from being a, working in Los Angeles in tennis? Was it being here that being in Los Angeles that got you involved in the music industry or did you go back to London and then have 
Well, I went back to London, London briefly. I was very, I, I turned out to be very unhappy doing the whole tennis thing and realised fairly quickly that it, I was much better off having that as my hobby than my career. Um, why? Why? Because it's much harder to be Jerry Maguire than, than it looks in the film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you sort of get tarred with the brush of all of the agents who are not perhaps, don't perhaps have the most integrity in the world, being diplomatic here. Um, and and I, dis, I just disliked it. I, I, I went from, there were tennis players I was sort of good friends with who immediately, that I was an agent, treated me very differently. And I hated that. Um, wow. Well, how so? How did they treat you differently? Th- immediately treated me with sort of enormous suspicion. When I was working at tournaments, I was in player services. I was there to sort of help them figure out you know, solve their problems for them, pay them their prize money. Everyone likes that. Um, and as soon as I was an agent, I was immediately arm's length, you know, you're going to try and screw us somehow. And I just, I couldn't deal with it. I hated it. So the I music knew- business isn't totally different from that. <laughs> I mean, on some level, there are a lot of people, like I was saying, there's skepticism from songwriters. I, I always try to explain to songwriters that, um, you know, a lot of songwriters don't want to do a publishing deal because they're assuming that they will be part of this um, stereotype again that that the publisher is only doing a deal to screw you versus being your partner in helping exploit your songs and to help create a brand for you and whatnot. Um, so nev- there's, but I've never been on that sort of side of the music industry. Right. I I, I went back to London for a bit and then um, ended up getting a a job at a law firm in LA that was at the very tail end of the Napster litigation mm-hmm. um, and uh, ended up doing sort of music industry work, uh, mostly copyright infringement work um, in the music industry right off the bat, starting with um, some litigation between Universal and Courtney Love. That's what was that case? Um it was to do with the California seven-year rule. Oh, right, yeah. California seven-year rule that says you can get out of any personal services contract after seven years, regardless of what the contract says. But if you're a recording artist, um, and I believe there's a new case just recently that uh, on the songwriting side, but if you're a recording artist, um, you the record label, if, you're, if your record deal was for delivery of a number of albums rather than for a period of time and you have not delivered all those albums within the seven years, the record company can get damages for the undelivered albums. And so Courtney Love terminated after seven years and Universal sued for um, the undelivered albums and then she countersued. Um, and it was a very interesting lawsuit. How, how um, did it turn out? It settled. Mm-hmm. Uh, How do you think that should turn out? Oh, that's a that's a difficult question. Um, there were some interesting issues in the case because one of one of the issues was is the concept of damages for an undelivered album too speculative? And I think that's you know that's a that's a big question. I mean, you know, you can't look at a past album and go, well, the past album made this much, therefore the next album will obviously have made the same amount because that never happens in the music industry. Um, but using the sports analogy, you know, you have athletes that do a 10-year deal, a 15-year deal, and sometimes they'll 
retire before the 10 years and sometimes come out of retirement. You know, there are all these ways to sort of get out of your contract. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, people don't look at athletes the same way they look at at songwriters or artists, you know. Um, it's an interesting idea of servitude and, and you know, the Prince, obviously the mm -hmm. Prince... Uh, situation with Warner is is probably set the precedent for Courtney to do the same thing. So yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'm sure it was in her mind at some point. Yeah, um, she's going to be uh, sort of highlighted in in this season because uh, we interviewed REM and that was a big thing was because he's he loves Courtney. Michael Stipe does. Yeah. So um, shout out to Courtney. I don't know why. I don't know her. Um, <laughs> um, but the, but the, I went on to then do all the file sharing litigation against um, all the file sharers. Um, so sort of sued 11,000 individuals on at a time. How was that? I mean, <laughs> you, I was a freshman at, at USC in, a, in LA. And, Did I sue any of your friends? Well, <laughs> well, it was the first university to sue Napster. Okay. And it was sort of one of the first, it was the first private institution to sue Napster because they were somehow exploiting their students. And so, you know, it was part of an era where you'd be in school where the teachers were in digital will never work because music needs to be recorded on tape. And the kids would go home and use Reason and early versions of Pro Tools. And clearly there was just, you know, the kids using Napster in their dorm room are going to classes and learning something totally different from their teachers. Now, obviously, it's a very different university and a different program. But yeah, there's a whole generation of people who are still frightened of downloading anything because of being sued. But a lot of the students didn't understand why they were being sued. It was basically an education program. It was the only way to really get the message out there that it was illegal. Did was, it work? I mean, clearly it kind of did. It, to it, some extent, I'd say. Why, why to some extent? I think the difficulty is you're, you, the people who were doing the most knew how to avoid being caught. The people who, so you weren't catching the biggest infringers, I'd say. The So the people you're catching are the people who really didn't understand that they were doing anything wrong. So you are educating them, but you were not necessarily catching the biggest culprits. Did it, did Napster ever go after and actually collecting money from any of these suits from the from the young you know, the it would because yeah, traditionally it's like R college. It would be a college. Yeah. The RA. Or the RA, yeah. Um yeah, I yeah, I was I had to speak to a lot of people. Um I mean we we would settle for you know, small four-figure sums. It's right. Um, and we weren't trying to put in, you know, we weren't trying to bankrupt anyone. We sure. were just trying to help people understand. Right. But it was very controversial. Um, and It I mean, probably worked on some, you know. I think it, it maybe worked to some extent. Um, what would you have done differently? That's a really difficult question. The, the um, you know, arguably... Arguably, the um, music industry should have gone and, and negotiated with the services earlier rather than just sort of saying we're not going to talk to you because, you know, you're stealing our stuff so we're just not going to have the conversation. Um, 
Are there residual things with, you know, um, continuing the analogy, the the XFL the ended up changing how the NFL actually uses camera angles in games. You know, they were they it really affected the way people now experience the NFL because there was this left of center football league in American football. Um in Napster, LimeWire, Pirate Bay, all of these have re, you know, almost every person who listens to this knows what those three are. Did the current DSP system learn anything from the way those companies structured their companies in any of the distribution or any way that they interact with their user base? I should think very little. Um, I think, obviously, the concept of streaming started, I'd say, with piracy. Um, Although, obviously... Napster and Goxer and Kazar and LimeWire and all of those was all downloading. Um, from our standpoint, you know, as a subscription service, as a paid subscription service, I, I certainly can't say that we learned anything from them because they were, you know, the whole point was they weren't paid. Right, right. Um, the, uh, you know, in terms of the, the free streaming services it's possible but from a technology standpoint they're very different we're technology is a different thing um i guess on some of a copyright law has always been connected to technology you know whether it was sheet music um to piano rolls you know which is obviously as people know the beginning of the Music Modernization Act is a result of piano rolls. But piano rolls, shellac records, vinyl records, CDs, it's, uh, analog tape, a, what a, ADAT, all these different kinds of ways of, of absorbing music, let alone MP3s. And um, Were you... When did you get involved in technology... Or is it just hand in hand? Because to understand the way these these uh, pirate companies were working, you have to know some technology, no? Well, I was always a complete geek my whole life. I've, I've, I, I mean, if you're an engineer, if you want to do recording engineering, you have to be. I, like, I, always, I mean, music yeah. and technology were, were always my two things growing up. Um, and, uh, you know, it was... I'm, I'm old enough that it was, you know, I didn't really learn to sort of code or program properly, but um, I did a little bit of it. Um, so You did but, a little bit of code? Well, when I was like 10, Who does 11, a little bit of code? Well, I remember learning <laughs> it at like primary I, school in amazing. the UK, like aged like 10 or something. Um, there was a, a computer in the UK called the BBC, the BBC computer, the BBC commissioned uh, a computer company to make a computer that was branded with their name and they created a, a computer language called BBC Basic that was like a simplified version of various other more complicated languages and I had to learn some BBC Basic at school age 9 or 10 or something and I loved it. I mean I could do programming to have it like draw like a basic image on a screen and have like flashing colours and things that was super exciting at the time. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I mean, I can't do I can't do anything without calling a friend to ask them how I can't something now. works. I can't with modern with a modern uh, computer. But uh, well, 
yet you run, you know, you're involved in one of the most progressive companies in the history of the world as far as technology is concerned. So um, how do you end up going from being an attorney to working in... Well, it was, it was actually nothing to do with the file sharing cases, but it was to do with... Um, there was a case we did about just decryption of DVDs, um, which we won. It's called the 321 case. And... Um, what was that case? It was a. It was basically um, going after a company that was putting out software that allowed you to decrypt DVDs, and it was about the oh, Digital Millennium yeah. Copyright yeah. Act and circumventing the encryption. Um, and was that or was that not allowed? Um, and it was not allowed. Um, and because of that case, the firm ended up doing some work as outside counsel for Apple, um, and then someone I'd worked very closely with ended up being sort of headhunted by Apple. And then about a year later, he sort of pulled me in to, to be the first lawyer for iTunes in Europe, um, which was just too crazy an opportunity to turn down. I mean, it's your, <laughs> your whole life was leading to that. Well, yes. You know, I mean, there aren't a lot technology. of people who end, up, who end up sort of exactly in the one role yeah. that exists on the planet and you end up in that role. Well, That's was, incredible. But it was bonkers because, um, I mean, AI was really way too junior for the role. So they took a, Apple took a massive risk on me. Um, but I had never, I'd always loved Apple. I've never owned a computer that was not an Apple computer. Um, and, but it had genuinely never occurred to me that Apple was a company where, that you could actually go and get a job at. It just didn't, seem real it just wasn't a thing um and so when they came asking i i wasn't looking to leave la i was very happy in la um and i think i made the decision to do it in about a nanosecond do you have uh do you have a personal life yes how to some how? extent <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's a, it's a, it, it's hard i try to ask that for all of our guests because most of the people seem to be um, you know, uh, euphemistically motivated and maybe workaholics, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's often hard for people to, to establish a personal life and still work in this industry. It, it, it depends what you mean by a personal life. I mean, I have a lot of very close friends who I really am quite good at carving out time to spend with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my life is very split between London and LA right now, so my friends have to be very um, accepting of the fact that I'm spread quite thin. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I, I have a lot of fun in my life. If that's uh, sure, if that counts. Well, also, <laughs> it's it's hard when you enjoy your job, you know. Yeah, and I get to do a lot of crazy fun things for my job. It's insane. Um, like what? Well. I get to go to all sorts of amazing events, like uh, the CMAs the other month and the Grammys this month and the Brit Awards and the Ivers, which I absolutely love in London. Songwriter Hall of Fame. I mean, these let's are talk some- about the Ivers because we don't have that here. No. Um, you know, this is a conversation that I'm sure we'll have once the microphones are off on some level. 
but um, the Ivor Novellos are essentially Grammys for songwriters. Um, but we even have, better, I would say, because they are judged by songwriters. It's, uh, right. They're not judged by kind of the industry in general and business people. It's all judged yeah. by songwriters. Well, the Grammys are interesting when you start realizing that the the makeup of the Grammys, um, Neris, then all the different branches of it are, you know, Blues in Memphis and jazz in New Orleans and Latin in Miami and and you know hip hop in Atlanta and and DC has a branch Chicago has a branch and the amount of people who vote that have nothing to do with pop music that you know they're what a songwriter is to different people in our country is very different than what it is in say the UK and part of it is because. The United States is basically the EU. You know, uh, we we live differently than people in Miami, yep. here in Los Angeles or in New York. Everyone lives differently and everyone views music differently. The UK seems to be a little more homogenized in, as far as um, their acceptance of, I want to say, so, with you know, not to denigrate music here, but there's sort of a an expectation of a quality of music um, that happens in the UK, at least from what it seems like here. Um, is that why there's more uh, enthusiasm for the songwriting community in the United Kingdom? Well, I'm not sure. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure it's fair to say that because we have the Ivers that there is more enthusiasm for the songwriting community in the UK. I think from a general public standpoint, it's very similar in terms of knowledge of, understanding of, you know, the fact that there are songwriters, let alone who they are. Um, I think the industry has done a better job of celebrating songwriters um, and setting up, you know, it's run by the Ivers Academy, which... Um, you know, is an association of songwriters and they lobby for songwriters and things like that exist in the, U the US, like Sonar, and you know, there are one or two, but they don't, it's not as unified. Um, and it, I'm sure it's partly a factor of it just being so much bigger a country here. Um, I mean, if only there was a platform where you could have an awards for songwriters where maybe there is a subscribed... <laughs> I don't know, like something that could show up on their television and on their computers and they could watch it and they could even watch it in their own time. It would be really interesting if there was some sort of organization, <laughs> company, that could put that together. <laughs> well, we did, our, we did our Apple Music Awards at the end of last year and we, we had a songwriter award. Um, and But rather than doing like a, a songwriter award, you know, one of the... These are some of the questions that I, I had written before. One of them is, you know, um, certain genres have wised up to what I'm calling the quantity quandary. <laughs> you know, it's, um, someone, um, it's not to say someone can't be prolific and also be talented at the same time, but there are some people who take advantage of of releasing a lot of music and their fan base um, expects to hear a 
quantity, um, you know, just a lot of music. And it seems like their certain genres, their algorithms then end up having uh, more focus on DSPs because they have such, there's so much more music being streamed by those genres. And my question is that, is there some way to incentivize other genres um, or are there ways to, you know, to bring out more rock and roll, jazz, theater, whatever it is, all these different kinds of music that, that seem to get swallowed because of the way the algorithm um, kind of, I guess, accentuates and magnifies certain genres. Well, there's a very easy answer to that. Okay. And it's called humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, Apple Music, I think more than the other DSPs is really, well, a lot more than the other DSPs is about human curation. And um, so we're not, we're not reliant on um, algorithms to sort of bring a particular genre to the fore. And, and we've done things like, you know, really focus a lot more energy on country music recently. And we launched Today's Country um, right around the CMAs. Um, uh, you know, we rebranded the playlist. We, we created a Beats One show around it. We, ha- we have opportunities to do these things in a way that others can't because we have humans curating things and not... When we un- we have very very few algorithmic playlists, the you know, let's say that there was an awards that really was songwriter based, an Ivor Novello Awards mm-hmm. for the United States. Um, it would probably be an opportunity to really shine a light on multiple genres and the people behind it, tell their stories and whatnot. Um, we have, you know, BMI awards, ASCAP awards, each for different genres in different cities, and they're not together. And the music industry is one. I mean, I, um, I know that there are some other things in the works that that would help uh, get rid of the ASCAP BMI line as far as awards. So, you know, on new awards, there are some conversations that are happening about that, but the value of the awards tend to be um, bringing the community together. Yes, you know? but I mean, the, and the other interesting thing to me about the ASCAP and the BMI awards is that they are entirely empirical. It's purely based on sales, streams. Um, and the IVAs is, there's one award that's sort of the PRS for Music Most Streamed Work Award. Um, and all of the rest are, you know, judged by a panel and it's on merit rather than on numbers. Um, and I think there are, you know, you can kind of debate it either way, which one is better. Um, I sort of love both of them in their own way. And I think um, celebrating, I understand the BMI and ASCAP way as a way of celebrating success and an opportunity to bring the community together to celebrate that success, uh, which I think is very valuable. Uh, And somehow the, but I also love the sort of uh, the judged, yeah, judged both, by songwriters concept as well. Both are kind of necessary because it's nice to say here's a subjective, here's an objective way of describing success of the yeah. songwriting community from the songwriting community. There was another DSP that had had awards that you know showed showed off songwriters and um, albeit 
the the name is was questionable and and I think there were some issues with how that DSP communicated with the songwriting community and that goes back to the David Israelite question. The other question David Israelite asked was about CRB rates. Yep. Apple did something different than the other DSPs did and they didn't um they're not challenging the CRB rates, which essentially the last push that the music, you know, what we would call the music army push for is the, you know, starting to, to um, explain and educate writers on the fact that these um, songwriters had a big victory in getting the CRB rates to where they are. And Apple didn't challenge them. However, Amazon, Spotify, and Google, YouTube included, um, all challenged the CRB rates and we're currently in litigation with these companies. Why didn't Apple appeal? It really comes down to believing in a healthy ecosystem um, and believing that the creative ecosystem um that this fight was not was not a fight to have um we were very clear quite early on we told we told the nmpa quite early on that we were not going to appeal and we genuinely didn't know what the others were going to do um but it it's it's really part and parcel of of a belief that the whole ecosystem needed, you know, needed change and needed this. This was not, um, you know, the, the the right thing to do was just to not appeal uh, and and to to leave it be. And we are we very much believe in in uh, a, a healthy ecosystem and that songwriters are a completely fundamental part of that ecosystem. Um, there, there's a thought process from one of the other DSPs. Um, I too have to be careful about certain things, but I will say that I know of of a particular executive who of of a competing DSP who believes that um, the role of a songwriter is obsolete. That the role of a songwriter is at this point is an archaic profession because the quality of the song is irrelevant to the success of the DSP and that they, you know, because of what we were talking about with the quantity quandary, that they're making a lot of money on people clicking regardless of the quality. My question is, why is that not true? Because music. I mean, because... Sorry, I'm, that's I'm sort of slightly gobsmacked by that. Uh, it's infuriating, concept. and but it's not not how some people view the job of a songwriter. Why is quality? Why is why does quality matter in an in a ecosystem where people seem to get paid regardless of the quality? Because music's an intrinsic good. I mean, I. I yeah, I mean, and, and creators because it's art, and because we should be DSP should be supporting that art, not dictating that art. Ah, uh, 
I hope we highlight that, and that should be like that, that. That that should be your new motto. You should walk around with a T-shirt that says that. Um, well, there there are some interesting things with you know, um, labels, artists, and writers have adjusted their their writing and their exploitation of art because of the new landscape. And um, there are two things that are clear trends: songs are shorter. People are starting with choruses. Now, my argument and is that the best songs for f- 350 years started with the chorus. You have da 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 and then it goes off the rails. Yeah. That's what Beethoven did. That's what Mozart did. That's what they all did. They all started with the hook, yep. and then they went back and they continued to find new ways to incorporate the hook. Yep. And even in the Beatles, when the Beatles started, these songs were two minutes and 15 seconds. Um, it seems like songwriters and artists and labels and I assume streaming service, everyone is advocating for, in a way, concise composition and concise um, short sonata form songs. I'll, I would certainly not say that we are advocating for it. We very much want to support the art in the form that the creators want to create it, the creatives want to create it, Um, which is why we support the album format more than anyone else. And um, we very much believe that if an artist wants to, and when I say artist, I mean a creator, whether that's a songwriter or a a performer, we want, if they feel that the appropriate format for them and that, that they want to have a body of work altogether, we want to support that. Um, and we are not pushing one agenda or another agenda on anyone. Um, I've, I've sort of, I've had some conversations with some songwriters about length of songs. Um, and like Ben Hudson, if you know Ben Hudson, Mr. Hudson. I don't. Um, do I? Should I? You should. Hey, Ben. <laughs> hey, Ben, hit me up. We'll talk about him later. Okay. But uh, he he released an album this year. He's a songwriter um, and an artist. And uh, all of the songs were very short, and I asked him about it. Um, and, you know, he has done it because he feels that's what streaming needs, requires. And Well, that brings up the next questions, which are, one was, you know, like I was saying, algorithmically speaking, are there ways to incentivize the great opus, whether it's an album like OK Computer or Channel Orange? Or, in addition, we haven't had songs like Rapper's Delight, which was 14 minutes, or Bohemian Rhapsody, November Rain, Welcome to the Black Parade. There are forms of music expression that we used to um, celebrate somebody going through the journey of writing a seven or eight, nine minute song that told a bigger story. But how do we get, um, how do we inspire songwriters to also pursue different kinds of music and different lengths? How do we, how do we do that without them feeling like they're playing in this quantity world? Is there some way that we can... You know, is there some way to almost split up a 14-minute song without it being split so that way it, that if they it's listened to for a certain amount of time, you know, that 
if you write a classical piece and it's one hour, one track, you get paid, I believe, similarly to if it was a two minute and 15 second song, correct? In the streaming world, um, yes, right? yes. In so how do we world, how yeah. do we how do we find a way to incentivize someone to not worry about the length of the song and the duration of the song and somehow inspire them to write whatever kind of music they want and even say if you exceed a certain amount that we then tack on another stream or tack on another stream? Is there any way to do that? It's an interesting question, but it, it, it sort of requires industry-wide consensus because, you know, you're talking about dilution in the streaming world. So if a long track is counts as two plays, three plays, four plays, five plays, then, then that dilutes the market share of other people. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's fascinating because you, you watch a song like um, A Day in the Light for the Beatles would be three tracks today. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't. It would never be a song, and, and I'm not somebody who thinks music was better before. I think music just is, but I think that that's something that people aren't incentivized to go and write, and labels aren't incentivized to promote and to record that. Um, why would they make that the single? It would cost a fortune to go and try to get either a radio station or, you know, to to record it. It'd be almost impossible to do. But I mean, there's the, like you said, that hasn't changed really. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody got played on the radio pretty much by accident because someone just played it, um, oh, right, even right. though they weren't sure. supposed to. So it. Uh, you know, nothing has really changed in that regard. I mean, it's always been harder for long tracks to get airplay in whatever form. Um, I mean, in terms of incentivizing it, I think, you know, it's something I'd have to go away and think about. What's, um, what's advice you'd give to a young songwriter? I would say don't be constrained by what you think um, the market wants. Create great art. Um, you do you, if you like. Um, because I think our job as a DSP is to support that and, and not to tell you what to do. I think it would be supremely arrogant of me to sit here and try and tell a songwriter what to do. Um, Why Apple and not the other streaming services? What do you mean? Why? Like, why should somebody subscribe what? to Apple? What is what is the difference between the DSPs? Well, the the biggest thing is the human element and the fact that we, um, you know, it, it isn't all based on an algorithm. We are trying to we have a army of people trying to figure out you know what songs go really well together and what you know if you like this you are kind of likely to like that and um, I think it's just a, there's a much more human touch to it which we think is just as important or, or at least is very important as having humans actually creating the songs in the first place rather than computers, which some people seem to think would be a good thing. <laughs> there, was a, there was a point 10 years ago, and I forget what the website is, where you'd see A&R people take the, take the track, they'd put it in this website, and it would say, you know, it would tell you all the, the basics, the... The BPM, it would tell you the key, and it would, you know, it would give you a score, and then they would do that with all the songs in the album, and they would 
partially choose singles off of the parameters. Wow. Because, you know, if you have a lot of DJs doing things between 120 and 128 in BPMs, and they'd want to see what, what fit best. Yep. Just complete lack of human, you know, I just like this song. We've also been doing a lot of work to really bring more sort of richer uh, surround to the song. So more you know, interviews with um, with artists and, and songwriters and more sort of track by track information and really try and bring some of the richness and life back to the music. And we're trying to, to, to highlight songwriters much more than than um, than we have before. And uh, I think, you know, these are the, you know, these are the differentiators you sort of have to look for when, you know, the reality is that every streaming service has all of the music. Um, it's really all of the context of the music that makes the difference. I suppose it's not different than the way record stores work, except for, you know, you could walk into... Um, a tower virgin and you'd see the same records in the same sort of aisles but you know some would presented. have what was that it, it would be how it was presented yeah and how easy it was to find things and um, how does an independent you know in in that world it was difficult because end caps were often owned or pushed by major labels um you know there's there are other streaming services that are partially owned by major labels um do you how does somebody who's completely independent get highlighted on Apple? We have human beings that they can speak to and they can play their music for and we you know decide if it's something that that we think should be highlighted. It's yeah. it's really very You're going to get human. hit up by so many people because of that comment just now. <laughs> <laughs> um they're all going to be sending you a lot of music. <laughs> But thank you for doing this. Welcome. Is there anything else, any other message you'd like to give our audience? Really that, well, the songwriter audience, really that, that, that they matter and they, they, without them, we are nothing. The music industry is nothing. And uh, anyone, I, I'm shocked to hear that anyone doesn't get that. Yeah. Um, are, are you optimistic for the future of the music industry? I am. I think there's a lot of change ahead in various ways. Um, and, but I am. I mean, I think, as far as I can tell, songwriters are a very determined community and um, <laughs> and an amazing community and a, a really coherent community. And I, I think they can and will thrive. I think uh, it just takes, you know, there, there have been some bumps in the road that will be ironed out. Well, again, I appreciate you doing this. I think, you know, the the music industry needs to have people who are, who can do a lot of things and choose to do music. You know, there, there are a lot of people who, you know, f you know what the Peter Principle is? You know, the Peter Principle is where people sort of fall up. And there are a lot of people historically in any sort of ladder type community where they, they get a job, somebody gets fired, they get the promotion, somebody gets fired, they get the promotion, and you end up having a lot of people at the top who shouldn't be there. And so whenever you're having a conversation with someone who not only should be there but is leading the way with what you're doing, 
it's really respected, not just by me, but the rest of the community. I know that we've had as a, a, a sort of come to Jesus moment for the songwriting community in the last few years where we realized that this is, even if we can't unionize, we still have a voice. And it's easy, you know, uh, I having firsthand knowledge of how certain executives feel about the songwriting community and positive or negative. It's just, it's, it's rare to find a community of people who are determined to, um, and aggressively trying to find a way to evolve the relationship between us, you know, and the streaming services and we are open ears and we're, we want to, we want to have a good relationship. We're generally pacifists, you know, we want to be able to, uh, you know, cohabitate and build together and do stuff together. And we also don't want to go broke and, you know, we need to, that's a fair desire. <laughs> we need to find we need to find ways to incentivize songwriters to celebrate songwriters because you know we have no album tracks anymore. There are a lot of things that we're missing on trying to find to make a living as songwriters, and we need to have people who are who are teammates in keeping our our vocation alive. And so it's good to hear your support for us, and we appreciate you. Thank you. We appreciate you too. We would be nothing without you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golden. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 